I don't know if you have a very high awkward threshold. I have quite a high awkward threshold. I, I enjoy a bit of awkward humour. Uh, my boss and I have had a conversation about who is more awkward and we've developed a, a sort of mechanism, a scale if you like, about how much awkwardness can you tolerate. And this is how you measure it. We work with students in our, in our jobs. And quite often we're talking to a student from another country and you might find that a little bit difficult to understand what they're saying sometimes. So that might happen, okay? Now in that circumstance, uh, let's say somebody says something to you and you don't quite understand what they've said. And you say, sorry, can you say it again? And they say it again, but you still don't understand. And then you have to go, no, could you could try again? Do you mind trying again? Now how many asks you've got in you, that's your number on the awkward scale. So I don't know, I think I'm between a two and a three, depending on the circumstance. My boss, Rich, thinks he's a four asker. He can tolerate quite a lot of it. He'll just keep going, no, go again. Now, Hannah uh, has a very high awkward threshold. Uh, and when she was a student, it was before we were together, she was a student in her in first year in Hall of Residence at Loughborough Uni, having breakfast. Now, Hannah's not the best in the morning, so she's come down... Uh, she's not a big conversationalist in the morning. She's come down for a breakfast. She's having a cereal. And this guy sits opposite her. He happens to be from Glasgow. And he starts talking to her. Right? And he's, so the story goes, she sits down, he sits down. She doesn't really know who he is. And he says, Apparently that's what he said. So she, she, she has no idea uh, what this means. So she, she says, can you, can you say that again? Um, and uh, so he said, is it right? She's like, no, you have to go again, no, no idea. So this keeps going, she's like, not a chance, no clue what this is, just keep, just keep going, keep trying. Until eventually he gave up before she did. So we don't, we've still never fully tested Hannah's awkward threshold. And recently uh, she actually avoided getting to know somebody at the gym because she thought he had a really strong Scottish accent. Eventually, she did get to know him. He's a really good guy. They've had a chat about Jesus, and it turns out he's from Yorkshire. <laughs> he wasn't even Scottish. So, anyway, we all find ourselves sometimes completely misunderstood, whether it's a Glaswegian at a breakfast table or somebody from Yorkshire at tennis. We sometimes find ourselves being completely misunderstood. That is what's happening in this story that we find ourselves looking at today uh, when we're thinking about Easter. Jesus is talking about what is going to happen in his life. He's going to die and be resurrected. He's talking about himself and what's going to happen. But this is early on in the Gospel of John. Uh, and it's, most of the disciples uh, wouldn't have had the foggiest words. In fact, I don't really think anybody understands what he is talking about. So he completely confuses people. And, and then we see from John, he said, and then we had to look back at a later stage, and then we understood that he was talking about that then. So they did remember it. It stuck out to them as something that he had said, but it confused them. He was very misunderstood. He doesn't actually let people in on the facts. It says that, doesn't it? Um, he doesn't want people to really know in this passage. It says he wanted uh, he, he knew what was in people's hearts, Jesus. He understood people. Uh, in our series, we're looking at how much Jesus loves everyone. 
He understands everyone. He knows us deeply, better than we know ourselves. Um, quite often, uh, Jesus is quoted as saying uh, that they may be never, uh, ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. He says this often about Pharisees. He's quoted more than once as saying that. Um, people can't quite cope with all of the facts. So I think if Jesus had have just said, right guys, just so you know, I'll lay it out for you. I'll give you a bit of a timeline and I'll give you a theology as to what's happening. I'm going to die. There's a reason for that. Uh, I'm going to be like a substitute. There needs to be someone paying for a sacrifice. And if he just explained all the facts about what was going to happen, everyone would have felt very confused as well. And he knows that. We often can't cope with the fullness of the truth. So often Jesus spoke in riddles, in parables, which almost drew people in a little bit more. He wanted them to want a little bit more, wanted them to ask, what do you really mean by that? Because then they would discover the truth for themselves. Then they would understand it. And then they would know it again and again, as if for the first time. So in this story, uh, Jesus is on a temple drive. He is driving out the money changers from the temple. Uh, it's the first of two instances where Jesus clears out or cleanses the temple, as it's called. And it, it riles him. Something deep in his spirit cannot cope with what is happening in this religious setting that he finds himself in. He, do you remember when he was a boy? Uh, the last thing we know about him when he was a boy, before then there's a big period of time in his life when we don't know much, and then he starts his ministry. The last thing... He, that he did when he was a boy was he, he, he was staying in his father's house when they'd gone for the Passover thing uh, in Jerusalem and then they were all going back and then they, they'd lost Jesus and they had to go and find him. There he was in his father's house. This boy grew into a man deeply knew his father's house and the purpose of it. So then when he goes and sees all this money being made in the temple uh, in the name of people giving sacrifice to God, it offends him. He thinks this, this is disgusting. This isn't right. This doesn't fit with the Father's heart for people. So he drives them uh, out. And basically what, what they've developed is uh, a, a sort of a, a currency, a temple currency, and you had to change your money because you, you could only buy sacrifices with temple coins. It's kind of like a really early first century Bitcoin or something like that. Um, this temple coin that you had to get, I think actually Christian may, might have got some when it first came out. Um, actually, maybe you never did get any. I can't remember. Too late, yeah, after the right. Anyway, so <laughs> uh, he, um, Jesus sees these people buying this temple coin. So people are getting rich off the conversion into temple coin. And he says, that's just outrageous. So he drives them out, turns a load of cords into whips and whips them out. It's pretty dramatic. And what he's doing when he's standing in the way of people doing that, when he's stopping that process happening, that means people can't offer a sacrifice to God. Well, that is outrageous because people want to come and worship God and, and give a sacrifice. They want to... Uh, kill a dove or something like that and they would buy that with this temple coin they can't do that anymore because he's driven out all of the money traders the money converters and so they knew only someone 
who was claiming to be the Messiah could do that because if you're stopping people being uh, offering sacrifices, you have to be the sacrifice. Only the sacrifice would have the audacity to step in the way of people offering sacrifices to God to say sorry for their sins. So the Jews at the time who were around knew this was a statement of Jesus being the Messiah. It's a big claim. And because it's a big claim, because they knew that in in Psalm 69.9 it prophesies about Jesus saying zeal for your house will consume me. Because they knew that was such a big claim, that's why they were confused when his response, when they said, please give us a sign. I really want a sign so we can know that you're the Messiah. You're claiming to be the Messiah. We want to be sure. Give us a sign. And Jesus confuses them by offering them a sign of architectural deconstruction and reconstruction. He's talking about knocking a building over and rebuilding it really quickly. And they're like, what are you talking about? That is... That just seems a bit off our chart. We thought you just said you were the Messiah and you're just talking about demolition. So it's confusing. But then we understand with hindsight now, don't we, when we look back. Before then, everyone went to the temple because it's where God lived. The Jews, the Israelites, knew where the presence of God was. They held it in what was called the Ark of the Covenant and they carried it around with them when they were in exile. Uh, then they lost it for a while, and that was really bad. So they had to win a battle and get it back. Uh, and they kept it very precious and very careful, and they wanted to know where God was and where is his presence. And there it was, in the temple. That was important to them in their identity. It made them feel safe. And there was the thing, you might have heard it talked about before, there was the Holy of Holies in the temple, where the presence of God really was. It was a special inner sanctum. It all kind of went in and in and in and in until it just got to one little bit that was surrounded by a really tall curtain uh, and only one high priest could go in there. And even then he had to have something tied around his uh, ankle in case he died when he was in there so they could drag him out because no one else could go in and get him afterwards because only he was allowed in there. Um, This was a way of... Uh, them appreciating how holy and how separate God was and that's where his presence was. Now when, when Jesus died, uh, we read in the Bible that when, the, when he was resurrected and that the curtain is torn. When Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain is torn. That curtain is torn from the top to bottom. So somebody couldn't have done it from the bottom to the top. It ripped right from the top to the bottom. So God basically is bringing in a new plan as a result of this resurrection. And Jesus is foretelling this when he's saying, I'm going to rebuild the temple in three days. Because what he's saying is, it's going to be a different kind of temple from now on. It's all going to change. He broke the purpose of the old temple. That's the knocking down he was talking about. Jesus, uh, God's presence no longer lived in the temple, like it did beforehand, after Jesus' resurrection, it lived in a human form. And through his church, it lives in us. Through the Holy Spirit, it lives in us. It's everywhere. It's gone wild. This is the master plan. This is the fulcrum that he's talking about, Jesus, here. God unlocks and unleashes his presence into our world through Jesus when he rises again. 
So because it's in us, that should make a massive difference, shouldn't it? Because think how, how with such reverence they used to treat this temple, and that's why they were so cross when he drove out the people. It was really important to them, the temple. That's why in the New Testament, when Paul writes, he said, treat your bodies properly because they are temples of the Holy Spirit. He says, treat them well. He lives in you. And so he, if he lives in those of us who know Jesus, that should affect the environment in which we walk into. Because it means we are now walking temples. We're living stones, the Bible says. We're like walking cathedrals. We can go into an environment and affect that environment. Because I play golf at Fulford Golf Club and God lives in me, that's where he is too. And that place should change because I'm there. Because Andy and Emma Stone and work in their school in Leeds and God lives in them, that's where he's on the move too. He's a, he is affecting that environment and that school too. Because Phil Selveratnam uh, is at Union Nottingham and God lives in him. That affects the temperature spiritually of Nottingham University. When the eight people who were baptised the other week in the courtyard uh, go to wherever they study or where they live at home or wherever they will eventually work, uh, it will affect the spiritual climate because God now lives in them. We are living, breathing, walking temples of the Holy Spirit. And when I was uh, recently in Newcastle, uh, I was meeting a couple of church leaders, uh, talking to them about how they work with students, and I just had a bit of time left between the last meeting and the, and the train. And I was just sitting there uh, having a little think to myself, and I don't know whether you, whether you do this very often, every now and again, remember to say, oh God, you're alive and you're living in me. What are you seeing at this point in time? What's happening right now? And just as I said that, this bloke uh, who was sitting next to me said, oh, I hope you don't mind, I've just been eavesdropping into your conversation with the church leader I'd had before. Uh, and this guy says, I thought it was really interesting what you had to say. And so I got chatting to him, turns out this guy's been in the army, he was in Afghanistan and he, was, he, he broke his back, so then he was on lots of medication, he got some depression as a result of that, he had all sorts of problems, got in a bit of trouble with the police, and he's just getting his life back on track, now he's about 27, he's at Durham Uni, uh, and he is in, into CrossFit. So I know a little bit about that, because Rosie and Dave Fraser, uh, who you might know, yeah, they're into CrossFit too, so they've told me about it. So I get chatting to him, Anyway, turns out this guy, as a result of being in CrossFit, is into Jesus, because the best guy at CrossFit is called, a guy called Rich Froning, and there's a Netflix documentary about him, apparently. He's a full-on Christian, and he shares his faith all the time on his podcast and things. So this guy wants to know about Jesus. So I had a chat to him about Jesus, and we prayed together. And it was just this incredible moment where it was nowhere near a church. It was nowhere near a, a temple of the Holy Spirit, apart from the fact that because I finally remembered, as so often I don't remember to do, uh, I, I became aware of the fact that the Spirit of God lived in me. I, I just said to him, what's happening at the moment? As soon as I had done it, we have a conversation, me and this guy. So often we forget about the fact that he does live in us. But it's dangerous, isn't it? The wild Spirit of God is living in us. And so because of that, we want to lock it up. 
we want to make it safe again. It was better when he was all locked up in a temple. We knew where he was. We knew how to contain God. And we often want to contain God in our churches. Uh, John Wesley knew about this, and he, he said this in a sermon called The Mystery of Iniquity, which is uh, an absolutely amazing sermon, and you can, you can read it all uh, if you look it up online. And there's a little quote here that I love. He's talking about Constantine, uh, who was the Roman emperor that became a Christian, and became a Christian, uh, he became emperor when he was in York. That's why that statue is there uh, outside the minster. And so uh, he made Christianity go wide and far, but Wesley wasn't such a big fan. And what I like about John Wesley, uh, who set off the whole Methodist revival, um, is he didn't really mince his words. So let's read his unminced words. Persecution never did, never could, give any lasting wounds to genuine Christianity. But the greatest it ever received, the grand blow, which was struck at the very root of that humble, gentle, patient love, which is the fulfilling of Christian law, was struck in the fourth century by Constantine the Great, when he called himself a Christian, and poured in a flood of riches, honour and power upon the Christians, and more especially upon the clergy. Sorry. Just so, when the fear of persecution was removed and wealth and honour attended the Christian profession, the Christians did not gradually sink, but rushed headlong into all manner of vices. And at this event, which most Christian expositors mention with such triumph, rather it was the coming of Satan and all his legions from the bottomless pit. He doesn't hold back, does he? Uh, seeing that from that very time he hath reigned on, on his throne, the face of the whole earth, and reigned over the Christian as well as the pagan without hardly any control. Such has been the deplorable state of the Christian church from the time of Constantine to the Reformation. A Christian nation, a Christian city, according to the scriptural model, was nowhere to be seen. But every city and country, uh, and country, a few individuals accepted, was plunged into all manner of wickedness. Anyway, more of that sunshine later. But John Wesley was basically saying the, the problem that Constantine brought in was he made it temples again. We've made our religious temples, we've made our churches into religious temples. We've made church a hobby in our lives. We often do, don't we? We forget that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are bringers of God's presence of hope into the world. And we think that church is somewhere we go to. We think God is of interest. So let's choose today to wake up. Let's wake up to the same spirit that woke Jesus from the dead. That is living in us. Let's be awake to that. The wild spirit that hovered over the waters is in you. And he is speaking now. If you want to come up, Matt, that would be great. I'll pray for us. Because Jesus understands us. He knows us. Jesus loves us. He loves us so much he was willing to die for us. He knows you. And he knows you, you don't always get it. He knows I don't. He knows that I definitely don't always get it. He's not annoyed with you. He's welcoming you. 
into deeper awareness of his presence. Do you want to stand and we'll pray and then sing. Jesus, thank you that you did, that you do know us all so well. Thank you that you spoke in parables and riddles and and draw us deeper into our search with you. Increase our awareness of your spirit living in us. Help us to carry up your presence into our lives. May we be mini temples of your Holy Spirit. We ask that through us, you would change the spiritual climate in York. May hearts and minds be warm to you. We are your church. We love you. Amen.